This is the Nippon Taikyu Cosmopolitan, Japanese endurance racing covered by an American. Welcome to the first episode of the Nippon Taikyu Cosmopolitan. This is the first episode of this podcast, which was formerly known as the Next Upship Podcast. Uh, if you were around during the Next Upship Podcast and you know nothing about the history and the rules of Super GT, but you would like to stick around, that is what this first episode is for. I'm going to be running down the history and rules of Super GT, and then later in the podcast, I will maybe start to cover Super Taikyu, which is known as the best Japanese grassroots racing series for endurance racing. So, with Super GT... Japanese motor racing ended up only starting about 100 years ago, and it wasn't even close on the same level as the U.S. and Europe. Jap Japan didn't have anything. Meanwhile, the U.S. back then had Indianapolis, and then the U.K., at least, had the new Silverstone Circuit from World War II, and then uh, Snetterton. Um, there was this guy in Japan... Gunchi Fujimoto, who was disappointed with the lack of Japanese racing after living in Seattle for a long time, and then he moved back to Japan. Uh, he opened Japan's first permanent track in 1937, and then over the next 25 years, Japanese motor racing began to grow with new tracks, series, and popularity. In the 80s, though, then, Japan was still lagging behind the U.S. and Europe, uh, the U.S. had the CART and IRL split uh, and with NASCAR. And then the start of Prime IMSA, Europe had the World Sports Car Championship with Le Mans in it and then F1. Uh, so then Japan had their own series they created, which was the All Japan Endurance Series. Almost immediately, though, the series did run into issues being a new series. The top class, the Japan Endurance class, which is what it's called, they ran Group C cars, which if you know anything about them, they were the most powerful prototypes back then. And even today, they could go head-to-head -head probably with modern LMP1 cars. Uh, but the budget on those cars were absolutely insane. So... The budget in the All Japan Endurance Series became too expensive. Uh, they, the series did have many big Japanese manufacturers, but due to budget restrictions, the Group C cars looked nothing like their road-going counterparts. And thing is, the spectators wanted to relate to the cars of the top class, the cars that they drove on the road every single day. But... Due to the cars nothing looking nothing like them, if you've ever seen Group C cars, uh, they're, they'll be called the road-going counterparts, but they look nothing like them. They run nothing like them. And due to that, the series kind of died off because spectators wanted to be able to relate to the cars and manufacturers they drove every single day. And due to that... They only lasted about 10 years, and in its place, though, was the All Japan Touring Car Championship, which was the beginning of modern-day Super GT. But now we go on the path between the beginning 
of the All Japan Touring Car Championship up to modern day Super GT. So, uh, as the series went, non-manufacturers started to leave as top manufacturers became too competitive. This happened, of course, like a lot of series, until almost all manufacturer competition was gone. Uh, what was left was Nissan at the end. Every single car team ran Nissan because they had the best cars in the top class. Uh, there used to be five different Japanese manufacturers along with Porsche for some reason. Don't know why they, they wanted to join the All Japan Endurance Championship. But I don't know. It's Porsche. They want to go into anything. Uh, but due to the fact that there was only Nissan left, it became a single class series. Which for top racing is not very exciting. Um... Even in IndyCar, they have two different en engine manufacturers. But if you just have one, imagine um, the GTE class in the World Endurance Championship was just Corvettes. I wouldn't mind because I'm a Corvette fan in the World Endurance Championship. Um, but that would get boring after a while. Nobody would watch that. And due to that, the JAF, the governing body of Japanese uh, motorsport, they're the version of the FIA, which actually knows how to do their job well. Um, they knew this was going to happen at some point uh, as cars and manufacturers continue to evolve. So then they rebranded the series to the All Japan Grand Touring Car Championship, the GTC, in 1993. There were two classes in the series, the GT1s and the GT2s. The rules would constantly change to make sure the repeat of only Nissans would never happen again and that the series would stay competitive. The GT1s being the top class later became too expensive yet again like the Group C's all the way back in the All Japan Endurance Championship. So they decided to ditch GT1 and GT2 and install GT500 and GT300. GT500 and GT300 have not changed names. That's what they continue to be, but this is what they signified back then. The GT500 had cars that they were limited up to 500 horsepower, while GT300, as expected, was limited to 300 horsepower. But today, it is Super GT with the... GT500 and GT300 names not being changed around, even though with the increase of power. But the GTC was called the GTTC until 2005. When it, then it was called Super GT. How it was called Super GT is in 2005, the GTTC wanted to host a race in Shanghai along with their race in Malaysia, but due to FIA sporting code, the series would lose its status as a Japanese series and become an international series if they were to host races in more than two countries. So then they rebranded the series to an international series under the FIA instead of the JAF, even though the race in Shanghai actually never happened. It, they've never raced in Shanghai, and the only international race that stays on the calendar 
is Malaysia, which has been off the calendar for about two years now. On to the rules, since we have the history down of Super GT up to this point. As I mentioned earlier, Super GT has two classes, GT500, GT300. But now, GT500 has a power limit of 650 horsepower, and GT300 has a limit of 550, but they range between 400 and 550. GT300 has three different categories inside GT300, and this is where it gets kind of confusing for new people. So, there's FIA GT3, uh, JAF GT300, in the mother chassis cars. So, for GT3, it's your usual popular GT3 cars that are now in IMSA, after they replaced the GTEs. Uh, they're going to be in the World Endurance Championship next year in 2024. Uh, they're right now in the Intercontinental GT Series, along with GT World Challenge, uh, North America, Asia, and Europe, and then they're also known as the top class in the Nürburgring 24. So then JAF GT300 are cars that allow manufacturers to implement any engine and hybrid systems from their range of tech. For example, there's a Toyota Prius in JAF GT300, so it has the body of a Prius. But they have a V8 engine from their original LMP1 car that won three 24 hours of Le Mans. But at the same time, it has a hybrid system taken from a Toyota Camry. So if you were any manufacturer out there, you can mix and match anything you have to go with the JAF GT300 regulations. And then there's the mother chassis cars. This class was to keep Japanese manufacturers in the series. For every mother chassis car, they had the same chassis and a spec 4.5 liter engine. And allows manufacturers to do whatever they want with the aero. Uh, that was to help keep more Japanese manufacturers in the championship as there were more uh, imports that were coming to the series, like Mercedes, um, Aston Martin. So that was to keep Japanese companies in the series, as it is mostly a, a Japanese series, and they want to keep it as Japanese as possible with the tracks and manufacturers. GT500, though, that's the most entertaining. These guys are almost as fast as LMDH cars and... Now, with the new regulations this year, we're going to have to see at Fuji, uh, when both these cars hit the track at Fuji, uh, for Super GT, it's twice, for the World Endurance Championship, it'll be towards the end of the year, will these new uh, LMDH cars be quicker or slower than the GT500s? That's definitely what I want to see, because they were almost as fast as LMP1s which were faster than the new LMDHs. My guess, though, is they may actually be faster. Uh, their second race of the year for Super GT uh, at Fuji is towards about around the time when um, the World Endurance Championship comes to 
Fuji. Of course, it depends on weather, track temps, uh, track grip, and then weather. Um, but if they're around the same, I expect the GT500s to potentially be quicker. Um, but besides that, you came for the rules, not any preseason predictions. That's going to be next week. So, rundown of GT500. GT500 has three manufacturers. Nissan, Honda, and Toyota. So, Nissan has their GTR. Car's been around for ages, and it looks no different than really the road-going counterpart, part, which is, guess what? What the series wanted to do, as I told you earlier. Uh, they want the cars to look more like their road-going counterparts, so the fans have a closer relationship with the manufacturers and the cars they drive. Um, so Nissan has their GTR, which is up to GT500 specifications. Honda has their NSX. And then Toyota has their Supra. Uh, all the engines in the regulations are turbocharged 2-liter engines. But they aren't spec engines, as each manufacturer makes their own engines in-house for them. Super GT has everyone's favorite kind of war, as you know. Unless if you went to the 2005 US F1 Grand Prix, then you don't like these kind of wars. And it's everybody's favorite war, tire wars. Besides teams and drivers on track and the FIA against F1... Uh, this is everybody's favorite kind of war, tire wars. And guess what? Super GT has four different manufacturers. At most, you'll probably see two. But we have four here. So you got Bridgestone, Yokohama, Michelin, and Dunlop. Uh, tires, if you know anything about the integrity of motorsports, you know tires are a big deal. Uh, if you go wrong with the tires, get a new... Uh, manufacturer, you need to make sure your car runs well with the new tires, or else you could lose a lot of time, and it can ruin your championship. So tires do play a big difference in certain uh, tracks and um, how it works with certain cars. So like, let me use IndyCar for an example, since a lot of you, of course, are probably from uh, the next Upshift podcast. And I want to keep you guys around. This is really fun racing. I mean, it's in the middle of the night, but you can find it for free. But for an example, let's use IndyCar. Uh, Indy has two engine manufacturers, Chevy and Honda. And depending on the track, each engine can be a little bit better. It's not to the same as tires, but it still makes a big difference. And another example is like um, the different compounds you use. So F1, you have soft, medium, hearts. Uh, it's kind of like that with how the different tires run. So tires play a big war. And tires are definitely something to keep an eye on throughout the season. Um, but let's move on. And with that, we have the success ballast system. So in the World Endurance Championship, we have a balance of performance, which after the first race is adds a certain amount of weight and uh, power deficiency for the top cars to keep the field classes closer together. That stays around in the World Endurance Championship until 
after Le Mans and then it's regraded. But Super GT does something I really like. The success ballast system. Two kilograms are added to every time a car scores a point in the preceding race. But it is capped at 100 kilograms for safety. If 100 kilograms would be succeeded, a car will have fuel flow restrictions in place. That is what IMSA does with the old GTE class. And they may be doing it for the GT3, but I'm not really sure. Uh, but to prevent sandbagging, which if you don't know sandbagging, in 2021 uh, during F1 preseason testing, we saw that Mercedes were not very good. Uh, they were literally sandbagging by spinning it into the sand at Bahrain during preseason testing. Uh, everybody thought with that they were going to be awful, like third or even fourth in the constructors. They ended second. Uh, Michael Massey helped uh, make sure Red Bull won a title. Um, but that's sandbagging, intentionally showing that your car is worse than it actually is. Uh, but with sandbagging, um, with that, let's say you're ahead in the title, headed into the final round, and you're up by, let's say, 25 points. Um, so you decide to sandbag. So you perform really badly, and then with the success ballast system, uh, you don't have as much weight added since you don't score points or even minimal points. Oh, final round, then you're you're gaining so much time that you basically win the championship. But that's what they do. Super GT has installed that the sandbagging ballast is halved in the penultimate round of the championship, then to prevent it, they eradicate it in the final round entirely, which also helps with manufacturers that probably made a better car still have that upper upper hand. So let's run down the calendar for this year in case if you're interested in staying around on the podcast or watching the season. Uh, the 2023 season will have eight rounds, and here's the rundown. First one is Okoyama from April 15th to 16th. Then we head to the first round in Fuji, May 3rd to 4th. Suzuka, June 3rd to 4th. And then we go back to Fuji for August 5th to 6th. And then we go back to Suzuka again for the August 26th to 27th round. And then we head to Sugo, one of my favorite tracks uh, to watch races on, 9th to 10th of September. Then Atopolis, which is also another really good track. Thing is, all the tracks on this calendar are top-notch. So Atopolis is the 30th of September to October 1st. And then final round is Motegi from the November 4th to 5th. And here's race rundowns. 15-minute Q1 session determines positions for GT500 P9 and below, and then GT300 is 14th and below. Uh, there are more GT300 cars than GT500s because they're cheaper, so it brings in more teams. Uh, and then there is a 12-minute Q2 session, which is used to determine the rest of the grid for both the classes. Uh, races range from 200 to 500 kilometers, with the distances in 2023 yet to be announced, 
Uh, they like to do that towards the beginning of the year as sort of an element of surprise. But usually the second round of Fuji is the longest one capped at 500 kilometers. There are two drivers per car. One driver cannot compete more than two thirds of the race or they will be disqualified. An action that does not secure you any points. Uh, and speaking of points, here are the top 10 for each class. It is ranked, of course, on a top 10 scale. It's very similar to F1, but it does have bonus points. Like F1 has fastest lap, uh, GT500 and GT300 have their own certain bonus points. So P1 is 20. By the way, these are class for every every class, GT500 and GT300. Top 10 is all the same. P1 is 20, P2 15, P3 11, P4 is 8, then P5 is 6, and then it counts down to P1, P10, I mean, which is one point. Uh, and then here are the bonus points. The bonus points are available for both classes, but are a bit different. With GT300, if a car finishes the same number of laps as the winner, they get three bonus points. If they finish one lap behind, they get two points. And if they finish two laps down, they get one. Uh, with GT300, it is the same as GT500, but instead of two extra points for finishing a lap down, they get three instead, and then the rest of the points are exactly the same. As I said earlier, most of this is going to be Super GT content. Uh, it's a series that I know much more than Super Taikyu. It's very hard to watch races for Super Taikyu. Uh, sometimes I will implement Super Taikyu, like potential drivers that could go to Super GT, or uh, Super Taikyu drivers that are going to like Super GT, or Super GT drivers who are going to their big Suzuka 24-hour race. I will cover the rules of the series in the future. Uh, the history, though, won't be very important. Um... For Super GT, the history is important because I could be doing like driver rundowns, let's say during the offseason. I do my top teams of all time that could include past drivers from all the way up to the All Endurance, All Japan Endurance Championship. And so when I feel it's necessary, I will cover the rules of Super Taikyu. And that may be an exclusive episode just before like a big race or if I find a race to watch. Uh, for any of you that came from the Next Up Ship podcast, I would like for you to stick around. I feel like this is going to be better. Um, I'll have much more enthusiasm since it's not just news the whole time. There will be some, but a majority of this is going to be all sorts of different content. Um, I have the leniency to mix stuff up, change things up, add new things, get rid of old things, and I feel like there will be much more interaction with the people that listen to here with, like, recommendations. Um, with that Patreon thing back then, um, I got rid of it for now. I just, with this new format and topic, I don't really know what I'd offer in my Patreon, uh, so I'm going to work on that, come up with some ideas, and maybe post it probably two months from now if I feel like I can. Um, pretty short one, just running down the rules. If you find this entertaining, I would like you to stick around and 
listen to this. Uh, I'm already enjoying it so much more. I got really tired of covering the same stuff over and over again. Even my script's different. I used to take three to four hours to write a whole script of all my news word for word, and that gets boring. And even saying it, you're reading out loud, which is not fun. Uh, most of these are bullet points, which are going to help me uh, remember what I was going to say, but then add other things on top of it. So that's the end of the Nippon Taikyu Cosmopolitan, which is Japanese endurance racing, covered by an American. See you next week for the first official episode. Goodbye.